repaired my motorhome for the 50th time. And just getting ready to, uh, to get going over there, and my um, family members, my daughter was coming to town and bringing um, my granddaughter. She was turning one on the 4th of July. And what was so amazing was everybody was celebrating. The whole, the whole United States, it was just amazing. I was so impressed. And we had a wonderful time. Uh, but it turned out to be a little bit too much for my wife. And uh, after everybody had left, um, a couple of nights went by and she, was, she woke me up about two in the morning saying she was having pain in her side. And I debated, you know, if you're a physician, you can handle it, come on. But I did know my wife. I know she's been sick. So I took her in to the emergency room. And she had a, a, a consolidation in her right lower lobe. Um, it was ironic, the other parts of her lobe, her lungs were clear. And that really didn't sit well with me at all. Um, of course, I'm, I'm in every test, in every room. They can't keep me out. We take her to the CAT scan, and we see this uh, mass. And um, the radiologist goes through it, and it doesn't look like it's, there's a, a mass in it. It's just a consolidation. And uh, we said, well, what, we'll just call it a pneumonia and we'll treat her for the next two or three days. So they kept her, and they traded her for the pneumonia. And uh, I'd come and go, and I'd see her, and she looked like she was doing okay. And I'd gone to work two days later, Wednesday, and I got this call that I needed to come to the ICU. I get a little emotional, I'm sorry. So I get in there, and I, 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 I'm like, why? I get into the ICU, and my wife's on life support. I'm like, what happened? You know, because they didn't tell me they were going to do anything. It was like, did she code? What happened? And so um, nobody would give me any information. Then a doctor came, and I had a long powwow with him, and he, he had... Uh, attempted to do a bronch. And when he got into that lobe that was really constricted, he tried to open it up and it ripped and tore. And it filled her lungs up with blood. Literally. He said the blood shot out into his face, shot all over the place. And she almost died. But he was able to stop it and you know, by the time I saw her, you know, she was being ventilated and everything appeared to be okay. She stayed on the ventilator for three days. And the first day, you know, they, they reassured me, she's going to come off tomorrow. Everything's going to go well. Well, the next day I come in, that night, you know, they got her breathing on her own. And so I'm thinking the next day it'll be out we'll be back on the floor. When I got there the next day, she was actually worse. 
So I'm really praying. You know how we plan our lives? We don't anticipate all the things that happen. We write our story. We say, we're going to get old together, and we're going to die, and leave everything to our kids and to the church, too. But each and every one of you know the scenario changes. And because we live in a world of sin, we don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to happen to your spouse anytime. You know, I have friends in their, I have friends who've lost their spouse in their 40s. But it didn't happen to me. So this was very sobering to me. It was like a light bulb coming on. And um, I spent a lot of time in prayer. Prior to that, the pastor told me he was going away this weekend for his anniversary. And uh, would, I, would I, I preach? And I said yes, and then everything broke loose. Um, I didn't think I wanted to be up here. But God in his mercy brought my wife home. Brought her home. Now I don't. And I just, I just want to thank the church for praying. Because we've got so many calls in regards to how you all were praying for us. So many visitors that came by and while she was on life support, just came and prayed. Just came and prayed over her. You don't know how I appreciate that. You just don't know. So she's home. We don't know exactly what the future holds. She's very weak. She's on, uh, we call it TPN. She's being fed through her veins. She had dropped down to about 108 pounds. And so it's touch and go. But I just want you to know that you're my family. I really want you to know that. I love you, you're my family, I appreciate all the prayers and the supports and the food. <laughs> Nancy, Dolly, I may leave somebody out, but the food came. I haven't eaten this good in a long time. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I stand before your people needing your presence and asking, Lord, that you will take control and that you will teach us this morning. You know what needs to be said. May it be said by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How can a man be made just with God? Or how can a sinner be made righteous? This has been the question that 
we've asked ourselves for, for a long time. We know through the word of God that by the life and the death of Jesus, we are made righteous, okay? Word of God says that, no question. When Adam and Eve sinned, their sin separated us from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, by their iniquity, they, their iniquity separated God and his people. That's you and I. Because no matter how we think about it, we are sinful beings, and we cannot dwell in the presence of the Father. We cannot look into his face without being destroyed. So here's the question. We know that our only hope in getting back together with God is through his son, then how do we get to know who Jesus is? How do we know Jesus? Have you ever anybody ever told you, you need to know Jesus? And you say, that's right. How do you do that? Now, this was, a, this was a real important question in the day of Pentecost. If you turn with me, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 gives a story when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. It filled that whole room up. And all these apostles went out into their outer court. Now, I don't have a visualization of where they actually were. But they came spilling out of that upper room. And they were speaking in tongues. And they were praising God. And they were talking about Jesus. That was the time of the Passover. There were Jews from all over the world who spoke all kinds of different languages. And each one of them were saying, I hear my language in that group of men. Now, aren't those men a bunch of Galileans? They're not supposed to be able to speak all those languages. Some people said, oh, they're just drunk. And then Peter stood up and said, no, this is the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he preached a sermon to them. And he took them through the Old Testament, through Isaiah, and brought them through to the present time in which they were living in, explaining to them the life of Jesus and his death. Now, we come to verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, this is a question we're going to see several times. So I want you to kind of put this in your head. The people are convicted by the Holy Spirit, but they don't know what to do. And so what does Peter tell them to do? He says, 28, 37, sorry, or 38, sorry. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repent 
and be baptized. Hmm. When John the Baptist started his ministry, we look this up in Luke chapter 3. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to kind of read it because I can't make it sound any better by me paraphrasing it. Verse 3, it says, And he went to all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So here's John the Baptist. He's preaching, and people's hearts are convicted. And then what do they say? Look at, look at verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? This is not a new question. When your heart has been receptive to the Holy Spirit and you want to get to know Jesus, and then you go, well, how do I get to know Jesus? How, how, is, how is this possible? I, I want to, but I don't, I don't know how. At the fall, again, when, when Adam and Eve fell, they, their sins separated God and us. It has been the purpose then of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to bring us back together. So Jesus then now comes to this earth as a man. He comes in, he comes in humanity. He takes on our form, and he lives this perfect life, okay? He lives this perfect life, then he dies. But while he was here, he made certain statements. He said, okay, John 10, verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one. We're one. Then John 17, he, this is that prayer right before he is taken away in Gethsemane. He's praying for himself initially. But then he prays for his disciples. And I, I, I love this. We look at um, verse 8. For I, given, for I have given them the word which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those who you have given me. For they are yours, and all mines are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one. So here's Jesus now. He's praying for his apostles. And okay, it's accepted that he and the Father are one. But this is his prayer. His prayer is that not only that he and the Father be one, but that his apostles will be one. But it gets better than that. It gets better than that. Verse 20, 
He says, I do not pray for these alone, but I also I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now, I'm, I went too fast through that. I do not pray for these alone, meaning his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's us. That's us. How do we know God? Through his word. So here's Jesus now praying for us. So what's, what's his prayer? What is his prayer? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. So it's been the purpose of Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit to make you and I one with them. Okay? One of the things I didn't, I didn't um, finish in Acts 2-3, well, I actually did. Peter asked them and said, they asked Peter, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. So we know that this, this concept then of being reestablished with God entails repentance. So what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Spirit of Prophecy says that it's acknowledging your sin and turning away from it. And every person on this journey to be reestablished, to be really reestablished in this oneness with the Father, everyone will go through this process of repentance. Repentance. So what I want to do this morning, I want to take you back to the Old Testament there's a number of stories that I could talk to you about of individuals who repented. And then I want you to decide, was it really real? Let's turn to Numbers, chapter 22. Numbers, chapter 22, is the story of Balaam. Who is Balaam? Balaam is a prophet of God. The Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. They were just getting ready to come into the promised land. They were right on the border of the Moabites, and the Moabites were really nervous. They had seen what the Israelites had done to the other nations as they came closer to them. And now this nation was camped on their border. So Balak, who's the uh, king of the Moabites, had a big meeting with his princes. And he said, there's got to be a way that we can defeat these people. I've heard of this man, Balaam. I heard that who he blesses, they are blessed, and who he curses, they are cursed. I'm going to send for him and get him out here. So I've got to read this because I can't say it better than it's, it's been written. 
So he sent messengers to Balaam to send a boil, Beor of Petor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of the people, to call him, saying, Look, a people have come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he who you bless is blessed, and he who you curse is cursed. So the elders of the Moab and the elders of the Midians departed with diviners' fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Now this is really interesting. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. What's wrong with this picture here? Number one, Balaam is a what? He's a prophet of God. If you're a prophet of God, you know who God's people are. Okay? So he knew... He knew who the Israelites were. He knew who the Moabites were. And he invites them into his house to see what God says. Let's read on. And he said to him, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now listen to this. Verse 9, then God came to, came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? God is asking Balaam a question. Who are those men with you? Do you think God didn't know? It's like, ah, uh, I'm God. By the way, who are those guys with you? God knew exactly who they were. Why did God ask Balaam that question? Was it for the sake of God's knowledge? It was for Balaam. It's like, why are they even in your house? Balaam never caught it. So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent him to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of, the, out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. Uh, any mystery there? Was that, was that not emphatic enough? Uh, maybe, maybe he needed to say it in a different language, but he made it very clear. Don't go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Wow. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with me. But Balak again sent more princes, more numerable, more honorable. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus said Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say. Therefore, please come, curse this people. Verse 18. Then Balaam answered and said to the servant of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, 
I could not go beyond the words of the Lord my God or do less or more. That sounded pretty good, didn't it? But then he said, but now therefore, please, why don't you stay here tonight? And I will make, and I may, that I may know what the Lord will say to me. You ever had a, a child who's asked for their second cookie and you said no? And then they asked again. Are, are you a little annoyed by that? What was my first answer? No. It's almost like it's insulting to your intelligence, like that you're going to forget that they just asked you 10 seconds ago for that cookie. Here's God. This is one of his prophets. Balaam now hears about the riches that he's going to get if he just cursed. He knows he can't curse the Israelites. They are blessed. He just wants to go. He wants to get the reward. And so he says, stay here a while. Stay here. Let me ask God again. Maybe he has changed his mind. And God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the words which I will speak to you, that ye shall go. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now this is kind of misleading. Because in actuality, the princes of Moab got up early and they left. They left before Balaam got, got up. And when he woke up, they were gone. But what, was, what did God allow him to do? If they came and talked to him, then he could go with them. So what does Balaam do? So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went, really, after them. Verse 22, then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. He was just, it was just him and his two ser- servants trying to catch up with them. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside and out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey that turned her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyard with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall so that he struck her again. In essence, she's she's trying to avoid the destroying angel. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused. So he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Can you imagine him talking to his donkey? (laughs) Because you have abused me, I wish that there was a sword in my hand, for now I will kill you. So the donkey So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours? To this day, was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way 
with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Don't kill me. We know the remainder of the story. Balaam ended up joining the Moabites. He was ultimately destroyed. This was a prophet of God. And even though he had communications with God himself, when he said, I have sinned, was he really repentive? No, he wasn't. He, he was more concerned about being destroyed than doing something that was against the will of God. In the New Testament, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, story of Judas. Really quick. It says, When morning came and all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death, and when they had bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that is, Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he parted and went and hung himself. Was Judas' confession, confession truly repentance? Why was he sorry for his sin? He looked forward, almost in panoramic view, of his future. He knew he would be condemned. God allowed him to see that. And he was so distraught, he hung himself. Yet we know that this process of repentance is necessary in this process of getting back with God. How do we become repentive? Let's go to another story. John, chapter 3. It begins like this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is all we really know as far as the Bible is concerned about this man Nicodemus. We later find out other things about him. But from this one text, we know that he was a Pharisee. We know his name was Nicodemus. And we know he was a ruler of the Jews. But in other sources, we find out not only was he a ruler of the Jews, he was a super ruler. He sat on the National Council. Now, I don't know what that is. But he sat on the council that ruled all the Jewish nation. He was prominent. He was wealthy. 
And he was also a good man. He supported the temple. But it says he was a Pharisee. Now what does that mean? Well, we have to look in the Bible to see really what that means to get a better idea anyway as he's coming to see Jesus. And in Philippians 3, Paul gives us a description of himself as a Pharisee. And he says, verse 4, Though I also have, might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now I hope you caught that. Righteousness that is within the law. When we think of righteousness, who do you think of? Jesus. When you think of the law, do you think of righteousness? Say no. Okay. <laughs> but to them, the righteousness of the law, he says, I'm blameless. We get a better picture of this now when Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18. Because now he's describing those who trust in themselves. For righteousness. Luke 18. Sorry to take you all over, all over the place, but that's my style. So he says in verse 9, he says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Catch that. So here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He's talking to God, by the way. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all my possessions. Sounds like a good guy, right? If you had the opportunity to hire a pastor. <laughs> and that pastor was unjust, an adulterer, robbed people, beat up people, did everything wrong. Would you hire that pastor? No, you wouldn't. Here's this man. He's talking about how he is. I do not lie. I do not cheat. I'm a vegetarian. I go to church every Sabbath. I'm making application here, all right? I'm an elder of the church. I teach the Sabbath school lesson, by the way. I do. I'm a great person. You know, God is so lucky to have me. That is what this Pharisee was saying. That is what he's saying. And that was his prayer. Now hear the prayer of the tax collector. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man, and he's not talking about the Pharisee, went down to his house justified. Justified. You mean that, repub- that publican? That guy who robs people? He probably lies all the time. He's probably, he, he's probably a nasty person. You mean that person, when he got into the present, when he prayed, what was his prayer? He says he humbled himself and he cried for the mercy of God. So who did he throw his, his who did he throw himself on? Jesus. Who did the Pharisee throw himself on? Himself. And God says, only the tax collector was justified. Now let's go back to the story of Nicodemus. But what we're trying to do is build a picture of this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus really was a good man. And it says that Nicodemus had been watching Jesus. When Jesus drove those money changers out of the temple, and then the poor people came in, the lame, those who were sick, Nicodemus was there, and he watched these people come back in, and he watched them be healed, and he, and he heard the words of Jesus, and he saw the joy in their faces, and they were praising God. And that touched his heart. That touched his heart. So he said, I want to talk to this man, but I don't want to talk to him during the daytime because it will look bad on me. I'll come at night. And this is their conversation. He, he, verse 2, the man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Nicodemus is now is trying to develop this, uh, a conversation in regards to who gives Jesus his authority. What gives him the right to, to teach and who gives him the power to do the things. He wanted to be philosophical, analytical. And he thought what he was doing was flattering Jesus to open him up. But Jesus looked at him and said this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you have to understand this in the context of who he was talking to. And I'm trying to make application here. He was talking to a good Adventist Christian who didn't go to movies, sorry, who didn't eat pork, who followed the rules to the max, came to church every Sabbath, probably was one of, served in a church, very active in the church, gave money to the church. He felt very comfortable with his relationship with God. And he did not feel that there was a heaven that he was not worthy of. Now understand what I'm saying. This was the mindset of Nicodemus. And Jesus looked at him and said, as you are going the way you're going right now, you will miss the kingdom of heaven. Follow me here. There's application. 
there's application. You could see the pride rising up in Nicodemus. Does this man know who he's talking to? Doesn't he know that I am, I am one of the, I sit on the highest committee in the Jewish economy. I am one of the chief rulers. Does he not know who I am? Does, does he not know what I do? And does he, has, he, has he not seen my life? I am a strict Pharisee. I follow the law to the max. I pay tithes of everything. I have done nothing but good. I am a Jew, a Hebrew, and I'm guaranteed a spot in heaven. I am a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm active in my church. I'm busy doing this and doing that, and I know God looks down and sees what I do, I am guaranteed a spot in heaven. Follow me on this. So he acts, he's, he's kind of irritated, you can tell by his response. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Nicodemus knew the concept of born again. This is not something new. When a heathen converted into the Jewish religion, they were considered, that was considered a new birth. He knew what Jesus was talking about, but he couldn't get it around his head that he was in that category. That what he had done, how he had lived, that that wasn't enough to guarantee him a place in heaven. And Nicodemus is not the only one that thought that way. That it's, it's still thought that way today. Jesus said again, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So now he starts to break it down. He starts to break it down. Born of water, born of the spirit. Let's just take the spirit first. In John 16, chapter, uh, verse eight, it says that God pours out his spirit. Gotta read it to you. He says, 16, eight. Oh, come on, here we are. He says, um, I'm going to read seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. And I didn't say he convicts Christians. Hear me. He convicts the world. That means he convicts Buddha, communists, atheists, orthodox, everything that's out there, every human being, you're a cannibal. It does not matter. The Holy Spirit works on you. Okay? He woos you. He woos you. It says it right here. It convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
Now, what's happening to Nicodemus? Why is he searching out Jesus? Because he's starting to respond to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. But he still has his pharisaical ways because he has earned his way into the kingdom and nobody can tell him different. But God is saying, at the road that you are taking, you're going to miss heaven because you can't earn heaven. You can't. Nothing you do, nothing you say can, can earn you heaven. You can't be a better Adventist. You can't be a better Sabbath keeper. You can't, just because you don't commit adultery, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't covet, that does not earn you heaven. Now don't go out here saying, Dr. Fluent said, we can do all this stuff because it doesn't earn us heaven. Catch my point here. Catch my point. Heaven isn't made up of what you do. It's made up of what is or who's in you. So now the Holy Spirit now woos everybody. But then something changes here. Something changes. The Holy Spirit now touches. Once you start responding, once you start opening up to this, to the influence of the Holy Spirit, he then comes inside you. John 14. Let's go to that chapter here. Now, Jesus described this. Verse 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't we just say the Holy Spirit talks to everybody? Yes. But the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in everybody. Once you respond, you give him permission to come in. And then he comes in, and look what he does. He says, oh, I get excited here. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, so. then the power of the Holy Spirit begins this process, this process of making me just with the Father. He comes into me, and he starts cleaning me up, and he gives me repentance. You don't have repentance. God gives you the ability to be repentive. There's no way we can turn from sin, especially if we really like it, without the power of God. So it's his responsibility. He takes on that responsibility. He comes in you. He changes you. He just gets in you and he just works in you. And and in all the things that you struggle with, you no longer struggle as much. This is a process of sanctification. I'm not saying you're perfect right away. I'm just saying this is the process of reuniting with God. All right. So the Holy Spirit then brings you to repentance. 
then the Holy Spirit gives you the power to turn away from the sin. The Holy Spirit then allows you, brings you to confession, brings you to forgiveness. You, in turn, then want to acknowledge your relationship with God. And you seek baptism, the water. Well, what does the water have to do with anything? The water is baptism. Remember John's message? Message of repentance, of baptism of repentance. And we see this in Romans, Romans 6. Romans 6 then describes the process now of the water that Jesus is talking about here. And he says, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and to the death. You know, we get up and we don't sprinkle. We put you in the pool there and we dip you down. Symbolically representing you dying to self. Okay? Symbolically. See, all this process is going on. We'll get to it. He, we dip you down, representing you dying to self. When you come back up, you come up with a newness of life. And this new life that you're living is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me finish this. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and to death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Galatians 2.20. I've been, help me out here, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, oh, we're going to mess it up. Go to Galatians 2 then. Let's go look at it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here Jesus now with Nicodemus. Jesus has now given him the formula for salvation. And it's just Jesus and Nicodemus. Did you know that? He's not preaching to a crowd. And, and what does Nicodemus say? Look at verse 9. What does he say? How can this be? Have we heard that before? At the day of Pentecost, people said, what shall I do? John the Baptist, what shall I do? Nicodemus, how can this be? What do I do? Jesus then explains right above it. He says, he describes the Holy Spirit like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So everyone is born of the Spirit. 
And that's what we just went over. He says the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of the wind. When you're standing out on a windy day, you don't see it coming. But you look and see the trees moving. You can see the, the leaves moving in the wind. And you can, if it's really strong enough, you can feel it hitting you. But you can't see it go. You don't know where the wind goes. You can't see it. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So this process now of coming to Jesus is based on the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And the only role that you really play is to let him in. You catch that? You want to be repentant, but you can't. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings repentance to you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows you to confess your sins. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that leads you to Jesus and changes you. I have read that the Christian life is not an improvement of the old. It's a transformation. You push off the old man and you live this life in Jesus. That's the power. That's the power. I want to end on this one little story, though. The story of David. Last time I was up, I talked about David. God called David a man after his own heart. David was standing on his palace looking down and he saw Bathsheba bathing. Instead of looking away, he continued to look. And then he sent his men to go get her. And they brought her to him. And he committed adultery, okay. She later told him that she was with child. So now he has to cover his sin. So he sends for the father, the husband of, the, of Bathsheba, who's a, one of his dedicated soldiers, brings him back from the war, but the guy wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't go on and spend a night with his wife. He said, how can I be with my wife and my fellow comrades are out fighting? How could I do that? So David tried to get him drunk, tried a whole bunch of stuff. Finally, David wrote a note to Abner. Or the Joab, I get it mixed up. And he sent this man back out to war with his own death note. And the note said, take him to the hottest part of the battle, then pull back and allow the enemy to kill him. And that's what happened. David sitting on his throne one day, and, and the prophet Nathan came. And he said, I want to tell you a story, David. There was a man, a rich man, who had many, many, many sheep. But he had company coming. He had a visitor coming. Right next door to him was this poor man who only had one sheep. But that was his prized sheep. Well, that rich man went and took that one man's sheep, killed it, and fed it to his guest. And you know what David, David said? That man must die. 
He was mad. Anybody, that man, he must die. And you know what Nathan said to him? You're that man. You're that man. God had given David multiple beautiful wives, but he took a one man's wife. He, Nathan said, you know, if you had wanted more, I would have given you more. But this is just open sin. Now, and Psalms 51 gives you the response of David. And the reason why I'm going back to this is because God still says that David was a man of his own heart. Man of his own heart. How can that be? You know you and I would have excommunicated him. He would have been kicked out of this church. Would have sent him a letter of, what, is, what do you call it? Of uh, disfellowship. Whatever. Would have kicked him out. God still calls him a man after his own heart. Why? Psalms 51. And we'll close here. In Psalms 51, David now acknowledges his sin. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Is he trying to avoid his, his guilt? For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Listen to David. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What did David realize? That the power to overcome every day, you and I, the power to overcome is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. When we don't spend enough time in prayer, studying his word, then it grows weak. And we grow weak. So here's David saying, Lord, I know I messed up. I, know, I acknowledge my, my sin. But don't take your spirit from me. Cleanse me. Make me into a new person. That's true repentance, by the way. And that repentance only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. We started off this talk with, how is a man justified to God? Or how is a sinner made righteous? The sinner is made righteous by allowing him to live in you. The story of Nicodemus is an awesome, awesome, awesome story. He talks about the snake on the pole. And it represented Christ. This snake, which we think of as evil and sinful, 
They said it represented Jesus. And I often looked at that and I said, why would Jesus want to be represented as a snake? That, and the reason is, he became sin for you and me. He became sin for you and me. And by faith, as we look to him, we are by faith. Now, the, the, the reason why this story was told was the children of Israel were complaining, and God sent these fiery serpents biting them, and they were dying. And so they said, if you look at this pole, you'll live. The power wasn't in the pole, but it was by faith. So, by to us, by faith, we have to allow God's power to do the work in us. And we won't get frustrated when we fail because the power is in him and he has promised to finish the work that he has started. Isn't that amazing? I can't end on any better note. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven. Wow. We struggle every day with ourselves. And then we get confused about how, how are we saved? Are we saved by what we do? Maybe I should do more. Maybe I, maybe I should smile at my neighbor more because that's going to be brownies in heaven. Maybe I should go contribute more. But Lord, reality is the more we need is you and us. And as we open up our hearts and allow you to change us, then you allow us to keep the commandments. You, you, you allow it to be a natural response in our hearts. It isn't something that we do to do something. It's something that naturally occurs in us because of the power of your spirit. So Jesus, please, we need this change. The struggle is real within us. And the devil's really intensifying his his attacks against us. Lift us up, Father. By the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.